to another. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Your host, Fran Barry. Thank you, thank you. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my three fellow Bond aficionados for another episode of the Bond Daft Podcast. Mission 7. Diamonds are forever. Uh, yeah, so widely speculated after our last podcast that the uh, Bond Daft crew are, are no longer in talking terms. Um, you know, when one walked in, another person would walk out. It was all a bit fractured. But... Uh, with a healthier budget, I was able to lure each and every one of you back in. 1.25. Who would have thought, eh? 1.25 <laughs> pence. And you're all back. <laughs> so thanks, guys. Fran Murphy? Yo. Fantastic. Good to, good to after all that <laughs> makeup speech. Uh, Gordon, good, Gordon Webster, good to have you back as well. Yeah, what is that? Oh, yeah. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. Good afternoon. Alright, did everyone forget the script? <laughs> Tell them I have a script. <laughs> and Steve McCall. I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> I'm demanding a two pence rise. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, it's already been contract and everything, so <sighs> You got me drunk and maybe sign that. <laughs> the paper is more expensive than the money we're getting. <laughs> you guys agreed to it? Right. So the reason obviously I've uh, used that as an example of how we're all back is Mr. Connery returns for his last James Bond official outing, discounting obviously Never Say Never Again. Gordon, you're a big fan of this film, aren't you? I used to say that uh, slightly sarcastic, I suppose. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's something very distinctive about this film. I'll just uh, put it that way uh, without spoiling it too much. It's what I would say is we we all really enjoyed on a Majesty's Secret Service and we we liked George Lazenby's performance and it, it was quite a dark film in a lot of ways. Now keep that in mind going into this film. Keep keep that in mind. This throughout. is gonna be a severely dark film then, yeah. No, <laughs> no, maybe not. Nah, not really. Yeah, no, yeah, I, um, I can see I, where this is going. I'll, I'll be honest. I've always said this is not one of my favourites. Yeah, I just want to get out of the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> are you sure you want to be here? Do you want to just go? <laughs> I'll just sit downstairs for a while. Right. Okay. And um, before we get into like the more of Diamonds Are Forever and, and the uh, sort of setup for the film that we usually do in the preamble, you uh, you recently have been doing some Bond antics yourself, visiting some old Bond places. Yeah, <laughs> not that very well. I uh, not not the most exotic, just in in Scotland, just up the road a bit. I went to. I tried to do this before during the summer and go visit a couple of the Scottish locations out there from Russia with Love in Argyll, near Argyllhead to be precise. And so there's about three different spots. So do you remember the, the helicopter sequence at the end when Bond and Tanya have escaped in that yeah. flower truck and they're going along this, this big valley, this moor, and the helicopter appears, a couple of spectators, so they start lobbing grenades at Bond and he ends up out in foot and is diving down. That was the first location I was quite keen to get to, which was filmed out, out there, a very rural spot. And then there was the boat chase later on, a couple of locations there. And so the first one I was keen to, I'd been up there before, but I couldn't quite get up to the location itself. I got to the sort of rough area, but... I had the dog and there was a lot of sheep about and, you know, I didn't want to, you know, with the dog off the lead and all that. So I, I kind of called it quits that day. I never really got, got to this location. So this Merlin location, it's so secluded. All I had as a guide was, was this website called On the Tracks of 007. And it was kind of vague. 
I was walking for miles up this big hill through the mud, almost slipping my arse and like having to <laughs> jump between the tussocks like Super Mario, jump between the mushrooms to actually because I'd done it after quite a bit of rainfall and it was quite that boggy. Fun. Anyway, I got to this bog that was just absolutely, I thought I can't get past this. I'm going to have to go back down the hill and I've been walking for miles. But by that point, I'd actually got to, um, you could tell where at least some of the shots were taken of the truck and the helicopter. I knew it was the, the kind of rough area and as I may see the buzz you get when you actually see a Bond location for real, I know it's just in Scotland, but to me, obviously, I'm a fan of that film for years. It was quite exciting. Now, see, as I, as I got up there, and, it, you know, there wasn't a soul in sight, just this um, little light aircraft, yeah, I could just hear this distant hum, and there was this little, like, seaplane, this light aircraft just appeared in the sky above me, and it started getting nearer and nearer. And remember what happens in the film? Bond's going along the truck, there's nobody there, and this helicopter appears, and it's getting nearer and nearer. Then I was like... You're serious, and then it, it, but then it just kind of took a kind of straight course and started kind of going away from it. But it was just so funny, just in the in the middle of nowhere, this I, plane appears. I have this vision of this really elaborate tourist attraction that they've got some sensor that detects when someone's near that <laughs> I know. area. I mean, I they, thought <laughs> they set it out. You know, the only, the the only thing I was like worried about was maybe an angry farmer. It was in the middle of nowhere. There was maybe some guy just that appeared. Would be incredible if he, would, he just got in his plane and came uh, out to just shoot you, you know, aerially. <laughs> That would be incredible. Right. Uh, but, so, uh, yeah, further to your adventures, anything else? Yeah, I mean, well, I've, I kind of got to the rough location, um, but there was nothing kind of concrete to say this is definitely the place, and I was a bit disappointed. I went back down the hill. I really wanted to find that big rock. Remember, Bond hides under it, and he gets out the sniper rifle and shoots the helicopter. He takes refuge under this big rocky outcrop. It's very distinctive, and, and I, I was looking around for it. I thought, I'll never find it. I was just kind of dejected walking back down the hill, and then... I thought I'll look around just in case I happen to see it, but I probably wouldn't see it. And just out of the corner of my eye, I just noticed it all of a sudden. I thought, that's the rock. I had a screenshot of it on my phone and I, I went up to it, took loads of photos and it's hardly even changed. I mean, I, I put I put a lot of the photos up on Facebook. You know, you guys can have a look and you'll see it's, it's hardly changed. So I, I was really excited to see that. That made my day. I thought just seeing that place for real yeah. from one of my favourite films and then later in the day I got to the jetty where Bond um, Bond and Tanya go off on the boat and again it hardly changed that was quite easy to find in comparison and I took a few photos around the, the walk there as well where the boat chase was you know Bond getting pursued the spectre agents oh Mr Bond and all that the, the, where there's smoke there's fire and all that but that was a really good day out and it's just given me a taste for you know maybe future Bond location visits how many other locations in Scotland is there is there a, what there was definitely was it the world is not enough was that in Scotland the castle, yeah, the I'm sure. castle. Was it Sterling or something like that. I think that was like up near where you were in Holiday. I think up and in, did they like, film Skyfall? Some of that in the sort of Scott. It felt very Scottish. That was up the Highlands, yeah. wasn't it? I'm pretty yeah, sure I, I think actually it that was Glencoe. Yeah, that was it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. But that, that's it. I mean, oh, and Fazlane as well from Spy Who Loved Me. I don't know if I should be going trekking around there with a camera <laughs> right enough. <laughs> yeah. That could be fun. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty awesome, man. Um, your pictures were, were great. They were awesome. I really, yes. really enjoyed Yeah, them. just the big thing to take away was it? I mean, like, what, uh, 56 years ago, man, it's hardly even changed. Mm-hmm. A wee bit of tree growth and that, but, you know, it's, it's hardly even changed. And it was so secluded. Isn't it like this kind of top drawer? Um, you know, Bond uh, tourist destination where there's loads of people queuing up for photographs. It was just me and a nature rock. at home with nature, you know. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. It's been pretty awesome. All right. Thank you. Let's get into the film then. 
Diamonds Are Forever, like I said, final return for Sean Connery in the role. Tonal departure, we can say, probably, uh, from the previous film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is heavily based on the book of the same name. And this one, I don't know... Uh, I've tried to kind of read up initial sort of stuff on it um, and the production side of it. Gordon, I don't know if you want to go into that a little now, if uh, you get more input into that. Yeah. I mean, remember how we ended on Our Majesties, of course, with uh, the wedding scene and Mrs. Bond getting shot and Bond um, with her kind of cradle in his arms, uh, how hard-hitting that was. So, you know, the question is how will it continue from there? Well, Bond actually is hunting Blofeld and... In the middle of that, and there's a new assignment for him. Explains there's been a, there's a big world diamond smuggling ring, a big worldwide smuggling ring, and um, it's felt that a lot of diamonds are just disappearing after being kind of you know mined and not reappearing in the market. And there's suspicions that they're getting dumped, so the prices go up and getting like stockpiled for something serious. So there's real suspicion. Bond gets assigned to kind of infiltrate the smuggling ring, go out to Amsterdam, and he has to pose as a diamond smuggler called Peter Franks, and he has to make contact with a woman called Tiffany Case, and he has to like so he's assumed this guy's identity and and, and to work out what all these diamonds have been stockpiled for, and could it be connected to Bofeld? Perhaps. We'll Wilfeld again. <laughs> yep. Okay, I think we're we're good to go then. We'll uh, go and watch the film now and come back and give our spoilerific thoughts on Diamonds Are Forever. Bye-bye. And we are back after having now watched Diamonds Are Forever. What do we all think of this one, gents? <laughs> is it bad that the first thing I looked up on my phone as soon as that finished was Popular Drugs of 1971? Yeah, that, that does say I a lot. I just wanted really. to see... What? Yeah, that was that was a bit madcap. Let's say uh, it, it was mental. I really, from almost shot one of the film, it just kind of was a ride of insanity. Um, what, how did you describe it earlier, Fran? Was it something to do with drugs? Yeah. Um, I, I, an unending source of astonishment. Yeah, yeah. I think I, was what I said, but honestly, like, I mean, it peaked for me at a certain point. You know, when it very calmly has Blowfield, Blowfield, sorry, in drag, in a car. I mean, honestly, the whole thing. I mean, I, I don't know. There was so many scenes where I turned to look at Mister Barry, shall we say, just looking over quietly, thinking, "Are you thinking what I'm thinking here?" Like when Bond peeps his head out behind a moon rock when the astronauts <laughs> try and yeah. fight him in slow motion. Why did they try and fight him in slow motion? You know, why could none of the drivers exactly. drive? Why did the the baddies set up a room for Bond and the presumption he was going to go through one particular vent in the entire building? I mean, Steve, I'll pass it back to you. Uh, it's it's amazing. You've summed up more or less the the sort of feeling of the room. I think there yeah. is a lot yeah. that this film doesn't explain <laughs> plot wise. It is it's not a lick of sense. Nope. Gordon, okay, let's do your your first thoughts after watching so, it again because we've not spoke to you about it. So I mean, you guys see where I was coming from and saying this is my least favorite Bond film, <laughs> and I'll. You know, Die Another Day gets a lot of flack. It gets absolutely pounded. And I actually think even that is streets ahead of Diamonds Are Forever. This film, there's... Uh, see, Guy Hamilton came back to direct. Um, I th- I'm not sure if I mentioned the year it was made, 1971. Two years 
after Her Majesty's Secret Service. Guy Hamilton, of course, was the Goldfinger director, and he got brought back in. to Really, they wanted to try and make another Goldfinger, basically. And there's trying to emulate success in, in having a bit of a swag about a film, and then there's just been cheap and nasty, and I think this film is cheap and nasty in so many levels. And I'm a big... You guys know I'm a big Bond fan. It hurts me when the franchise gets dragged down and, I, you know, with silliness and poor screenplay and and daft characters. And like you said, it's all over the place. And, you know, one of the, the biggest things is just coming on the back of an Imagine's Secret Service, a gritty action film with genuine suspense, with a genuine love story and believable acting. Some of the dialogue in this film was it was just so kind of cheap and not just unrealistic. So you're not a fan of this film? No, I'm not a fan <laughs> not, of this no. film. <laughs> Do you know what it was like? It was like it was like going from the scene in Revenge of the Sith where Anakin murders the children immediately The younglings. And, yeah, the younglings immediately into like the Star Wars holiday special. I mean, like that that was yeah. what it was like from On Her Majesty's <clears throat> Secret Service to this. It was like it was like this is almost like Bond's imagined raving thoughts when he's in the funny farm after being like gone insane from his wife's death. <laughs> know, Do you know I what know. I mean? One of the sort of most jarring aspects to me is well, I think what most reasonable people would have wanted would have been a real kind of angry, gritty revenge thriller. The the basically the film revolving around Bond avenging the death of his wife to Irma Boon and who wasn't in it and and Blofeld. And instead we get this kind of camp slapstick comedy with, uh, like I said, bad dialogue. Um, for Connery returning for one film, it wasn't a, a good return for him at all. And I did like the beginning, the the reveal. You didn't, the pre-tail sequence is actually all right. It's one of these films that gets off to a decent start. And you hear Connery's voice. He's um, relentlessly pursuing Blofeld. And he's, he's like, where is he? Where is Ernst Stavro Blofeld and all this? And you just hear his voice and you don't actually see his face. And then eventually there's the reveal, the way there was in Doctor No. But it's... I, I thought even that was the really reveal, camp, though. Some it of was that, bad. That, that the, reveal... The, the dubbing of the voice and... The, yeah. It was quickly caught. It was just jarring. It was, I wasn't... I already was on a bit of a... Yeah. A sort of wrong foot with it, I think. I mean, the, I, I do like the way it was just showing him. Uh, well, I, I, I get your, just, your your sentiment is that you like the idea of the pursuit of Blofeld. Yeah, that, this, yeah, 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 yeah totally, that. yeah, yeah. So I like that, and you know, you could tell Bond had just kind of gone to bastard mode because he was, you know, just act, angry, just pure. This looks like a guy of pure rage, and then you see him just sauntering down the steps, and just his delivery of the Bond James Bond line, just that, it just felt totally flat at that point I think and that you know it, the, the film just gradually deteriorated after that point and the the uh, it, you know he was quite brutal obviously he was like strangling the, the girl with her bikini top and the thing is it, it could have just said it, it's strangling her and saying where's Bofeld you would think first he would have just asked her casually like right I need you to tell me where Bofeld is but he doesn't even do that he just quit you know yeah. <laughs> actually who was she who actually was she? I think she's credited as Girl in Bikini. Right. Um, I Girl in Bikini 1. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve, what, we've not really heard much on you in this. What was your general thoughts on this? Honestly, I think I'm, I'm just kind of... I'm, I'm gutted, I think is the best way to put it, because after 
on Her Majesty's Secret Service. You're absolutely right in that what you would expect after that is Bond trying to get revenge. And that entire sentiment was sort of compressed into the pre-title sequence, which was so badly done. And there's a from that point onwards, there was there is zero reference whatsoever to any kind of personal vendetta against Blofeld. It goes right back to there's a mission. In this case, it happens to be some plot involving a diamond heist, and he's back after Blofeld again for operational reasons. There's no reference whatsoever to anything that's happened in the previous film. It's and you're right, it's absolutely not what you expect. It does seem as though they've gone straight back to what they think the audience wants. So they've gone straight back to every single girl being scantily dressed to explosions and violence, which is still terribly done. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on this sort of terrible special effects and explosions and the awful fight scenes and stuff, but <laughs> it's like... Oh, it's, it's, it's like those away, man. <laughs> they've gone right back to sort of film... It's oh, they've, they've tried realized and everything yes. was dialed up to eleven as the was, but yeah. not in any good way. It was no. uncalled yeah. for, and it was badly judged. Yes, yeah. The thing is, though, right? It's weird because the film confused me. It was crazy. It was by turns funny when it wasn't supposed to be contrived. You know, um, there was loads of of completely implausible moments, etc. But I didn't hate the movie. I didn't. No. I didn't want to turn it off and scream with rage or exasperation or anything. I was just. I was just sitting there thinking, you know, what the heck? It, it was almost like if if one of your friends or something had just gone loopy and you were trying to kind of help them get back to where they were supposed to be. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you you don't want to give up on them. You know, you're like, you know, come on, let's get you home. You know, what's wrong with you? You know, or whatever. Like, I think a more uh, apt example would be if someone, had, your friend, had taken this all sorts of crazy drugs and you were uh-huh. trying to just get them home. Yeah, uh, you knew that something was wrong. You're like, oh, you know what's happening. But like, we laughed. We did laugh. We weren't supposed to laugh. We we groaned inside. We weren't supposed like basically this film made us react the opposite to the way that it wanted us to in every scene. Yeah. And yeah. can I just say, following on from Steve's great point there about you know the total disregard for the the Honor Majesty's story, there was there's just no tension there between Bond and Blofeld throughout the film, and you know Charles Gray he could he could have been a great Blofeld, but I think they tried to make him kind of charming. He sits there smirking and raising his eyebrows. And he's not like this kind of sinister megalomaniac that Donald Pleasance and Telly Savalas played. But there's just no tension between him and Bond. And he had Bond's wife murdered, you know, and it was meant to be like a short time before. And that, that to me is just a, a total failure. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I, th- I completely agree. Okay, let's try and unpack this one. Uh, oh, we can. Yeah. <laughs> How do you unpack this? Right, well, I think we have to start with where it all really began with the sort of, they had a lot of, not issues, but they were kind of, there was a chain of events that led to different writers coming in, or a different writer coming in, Tom Mankiewicz, you mentioned him, I think, either off-air or on-air previously, Gordon. Um, yeah. The cast, we'll start with the, the return of Connery then, first of all. For now, the record sum. Yes. Record salary. So I mentioned the £1.25 that you guys were drafted back, obviously. Was oh, that gone up from 1.25 pence? So we get £1.25 now. Oh, that's right. It was 1.25. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, A massive increase. I better check the contract. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, we'll dear. doing well. We might have to stop this. I can't even afford to keep this going now. I've paid that much for you guys. Um, that was a lot of money to me, you know. <laughs> but, um, 
Anyways, Sean Connery, they they obviously we we covered it in the last podcast, but uh, George Lazenby had he's caught he decided nope, not doing any more. So they were like, right, well, we need another Bond. And they'd spoken to a couple of American actors, Burt Reynolds, and who was the other one? There was one other one. Burt Reynolds could have fitted into that film, I'll tell you. Uh, I can't remember who it is now. I'd read about it. But they both had rejected it and said that they don't think Bond should ever be played by an American. So quite a quite a, a big a kind of big thing to do, turn down a role. Like, you've got six films out of it just because, obviously, you believe that, that you know, they shouldn't cast an American. So they were kind of hamstrung a bit and then decided right I think one of the other producers outside of Broccoli and Saltzman had said get Connery back with money's not an issue throw at him what does he need what does he want and it was 1.25 million they paid for him and I think he used it as far as I'm aware for some sort of um, artist kind of like uh, development set, yeah. centre in Scotland set, I think he set up from scratch it was like the Scottish Film Education Trust or something like that and I think as well that that's maybe where quite a bit of the budget went. I think it was maybe, I don't know if the $7 million kind of included his salary, but, you know, we talked about some of the ropey special effects later on, and just the final kind of climatic scene was in an oil rig where you'd maybe expect something a bit grander, and the Las Vegas setting for me was, I think when you guys used the, the term dumbed down, yeah, the likes of that a bit... Well, I, I think that they should have kept away from the casino bit in the middle and put more money into the ending because I, I think I pointed out didn't I, that it was it reminded me of the Star Wars trench run, the thing with the Death Star because the Death Star is approaching a planet that it's going to destroy and the, the rebels have a certain amount of time to take it out before that. The oil rig's got a satellite that's got a laser beam on it that's going to aim at Washington DC and the authorities have a certain time to, to take it out. You know, uh, the the big bad is trying to escape like Vader does in his TIE fighter. Like, there's all these things that are kind of... I almost imagine George Lucas saw this and maybe a grain of that went into his head. I mean, it is a good set piece without a shadow of a doubt. It is the real world version of the Death Star climax in Star Wars. But they could have put more money into that. Maybe the casino bit in the middle just felt... It just seemed like a, a kind of a waste of time to me. Yeah. I don't know if anybody else feels that. Totally. Uh, the music absolutely does my head. Oh, God, yeah. Right, and, that, and, that, and that particular bit, there was some great music in the film, but the whole Las Vegas scenes, and see when it got to, like, the sort of, like, sort of kids' um, arcade room, Tiffany Case is using it as a way to help smuggle the diamonds, but the scene with the gorilla, the woman turn into the gorilla, I mean, that's like something out of a John Candy film, that... That's. Sure, I just thought this is a. It just fit into a James Bond film yeah. at all. But you saying this right now, see to anyone who's not seen this film or doesn't know much about Bond, they're going to be like, have women turned into a gorilla? Like, think about that. That just comes out of nowhere in the podcast as well. Like, what possible way would that fit into this at all? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was mental. And I have to always assume that none of that was in the book. You know, we haven't read it, but I don't think Fleming probably had. I don't know. Did it's they, outrageous. Did... Uh, this, no, I. I don't think any, no. of, any of that. I've not read the whole novel, but and this, you know, the the setting where um, Tiffany Case was um, playing these sort of arcade games with these kids. I, I was sitting there thinking, is this a Bond film? And obviously, I've sat there thinking that a good few times. I've seen the movie quite a few times, but it just that bit. You you just wondered whether you were watching a Bond film. It was all over the place. 
see from you what you said, Fran, as well, about the the um the battle the end and the I see where you're coming from. Obviously, the, the influence in Star Wars. I think the special effects were good for the the explosions on the oil rig, oil rig itself were the good. Genuine explosions, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was that fantastic big scene at the end from a distance where you saw the rig explode, and you're thinking, wow. Somebody actually set that thing up, you know what I mean? But I, I had no problem with the inset piece. It was it, it was kind of mad in some ways, silly in certain parts, but, you know, didn't feel out of place in a Bond film. It was like, it almost was like the volcano set piece. And you only have twice. Uh-huh. And Blofeld's lair on the yeah, volcano. Like. Just a big thing going on with hundreds of people running around and explosions and whatever. But, um... Yeah, I mean, that part of the film was probably one of the better parts, I think. Um, but all the parts... <laughs> I mean, I still can't help but kind of like it, though. Like, I'm never going to like say it's a, a shit film. Like, it's almost verging on one of those films that's so bad it's good. I was just about to use that exact phrase. That, to me, is how this I would describe this film. You mentioned it earlier about the, the way that lines are delivered and the way that the tone, you know, they're going for a one-liner, we all sigh at it, and then it does something completely incoherent, and then we all laugh because it was so bad. <laughs> that's yeah. that sort of, like, mis- everything was misjudged, but you can actually enjoy it for, if you go into it looking for that, that you can get that. Finding any kind of enjoyment out of that I found particularly difficult. It just, I think it was so difficult to follow. It was so disjointed and so all over the place. I think I almost kind of I couldn't get into it. I kind of sat almost detached from it. So yeah, I've, all yeah. I was doing was kind of watching a screen, and things were popping up, different locations were happening all of a sudden, and it just it was I wasn't gripped by it. I I don't think at any point the storyline didn't catch me. There was no underlying story. Obviously, the last film you had Bond and his. Well, what ended up his wife? There was at least that kind of going on as well. Besides the sort of ropey storyline, in that there was nothing. I'm sorry, but I just couldn't. I could not. I felt like I was sat back watching. I could have just been watching a screen with flashing colours. Yeah, <laughs> do you know? I think this goes to the core of what different people enjoy because of their nature. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think some people can appreciate absolute mad chaos to a certain level, whereas other people maybe don't enjoy it because it doesn't have something that grips them i think it's it's almost like it's almost like sense of not everyone has the same sense of humor if that makes sense do you know what i mean like i think um i mean steve are you into not are you into films like the whole genre of so bad it's good because i love that whereas i know a lot of people who no, maybe see, don't yeah i see what you mean I've, i i do know the kind of films you mean and i i tend to watch those and just go no it's just uh, so yeah. bad full stop and I think someone one of us while watching it said a five year old would love this and I mean I completely see there's it was you Fran wasn't it there's an audience for I am five <laughs> I gotta say I mentioned this I I really I did quite like the film as a kid for a while and that I mean we've all said that some Bond films can seem amazing when you're a kid because you you just want the action and the crazy things but you know once you start getting into characterization and dialogue and music and stuff like that that's where you can start picking holes and yeah. I, I was going to say about the dialogue there as well yeah again. let's touch on that then the dialogue was one of the major issues wasn't it um yeah I, what was it plenty of tool the character yeah hard i think the yeah hard casino yeah uh, I, I, she's just one example the the delivery from a lot of the actors it, there just wasn't a lot of genuinely good acting did they spend so much on connery perhaps that they didn't have enough budget left to employ any other 
good actors. I mean, they effectively had to kind of scrape the barrel until yeah, they could get. What what has happened? It does feel like that because the sets yeah. didn't look. Yeah, the oil rig set was okay. It wasn't particularly. I mean, especially when you've watched it when you only have twice the volcano set, and you've got that as a, you know been spoiled by that almost, and then you've got that the, the oil rig thing was okay. Those special effects with the exploding helicopters when they were getting shot were awful. Yeah. Um, and again, acting some of the actors they've they've brought on, it felt like they might have just got them out of a casino. Um, yeah, <laughs> or just people off the street. Well, I like the people that stood on the side of the street during the car chase and did not run when the, all the cars were flying towards them. They were you know all I mean? stood on that corner just watching. Yeah, because yeah, like, I think that was the, of the public. That was thing where it was. I was members of the public, onlookers to yeah. the, the real filming. Yeah. Oh, come on, you can get a free, you know, watch this. And I think, I think, obviously, saved some more money. But, you know, that would explain, actually, a lot of the crappy, boring, kind of shitty tourist video for small town style shots in the middle of the film of, like, kind of strip, you know, what, what would you call it? Like, um, it's not like strip mall. It's, like, just long roads with, like, crappy signs in America. Just nothing. You know, the, the, like, just nothing was going on. Yeah, it was a strange... It's just cheap. Yeah. Just cheap crap. But, like... See, the thing is, I'm quite aware of this. Like, Gordon, you love this franchise. And I love... Like, I feel the same way about Star Trek franchise, right? Obviously, I've criticised that. But How like, long did that take? 20 minutes and 15 seconds in Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> it's come up there. That's, that's a new record. 20 minutes. I'm trying, I'm trying to display empathy here. But, like... <laughs> like, in no way is this, like, trashing... I respect the film in the sense that there was, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent bad. It's not going to be a zero star film or a one star film. I don't think. Do you know what I mean? It's not an absolute disaster of a movie, but it's it's not up to the same quality. That it's not on the trajectory you would expect. Having like on the journey we've been with the film so far. Do you know what I mean? Like, but I like no. I, I still enjoyed it in a way because it was so crazy. But it's I think we'd all agree that if we were to have predicted what this would have been like, it wouldn't have been this. Let's try and kind of focus on some of the things. What, what what would you want to focus on? Possibly, you said we mentioned the dialogue was poor. Some of the, the lines were poor. Um, cheesy. Cheesy. Uh, the way that those henchmen, Mr. Kid and um, Mr. Little Wind, Wind. Mr. Wind, Wind yeah. was it? Uh, you know, they, they delivered lines like, like ca- cartoon characters. Uh, and it was every single line was said in that sort of like very deliberate, evil person kind of speech, very slow. They didn't deliberate. have much normal dialogue. They could have been used a bit more effectively. I did actually like them. They were I, maybe. I, 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 did, I did actually like some of that. So that was probably the best example of maybe where that, that humour kind of worked. Which one was Crispin Glover's dad? Mr. Wint and Bruce Glover. And I think as well their appearance, um, both quite different. I like how Mr. Kid is quite, they're both quite creepy looking. Mr. Kid is kind of big moustache and like dog ear likes, you know, he's, he's, they're both very odd looking. And, you know, I think they're kind of, they're very creepy villains. They are a bit kind of over the top. Their dialogue, there just wasn't any normal dialogue. If they could have used them more, just different sort of scenes, you know. Like there was a, also an obvious like sex scene. There was a decision no, somewhere along the no, line to give that pair a very specific homoerotic relationship. And I couldn't quite understand why, because they could have been just a pair of villains working together. But there was obviously a decision somewhere well, we, to turn them into a couple. But we know what that is, right? And here's the thing, because this is where it gets difficult with, with this particular thing. Because prior to, to, well, I don't know what year or whatever, but there was an idea that 
obviously homosexuality was related to villainy or perversion in some sense, do you know what I mean? But watching it with today's lens, we know that, you know, gay people can be as evil as anyone else, do you know what I mean? So I think at the time, they probably would have thought being gay is a bit freaky, these are creepy guys, they're villains, let's pair that up. It's a bit icky, the audience will respond to that. But like, like we couldn't, we couldn't say that they were just, it was a matter of fact thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, they definitely chose it because at that time it would have been seen that way. Yeah. yeah. That's, again, why it's uncomfortable now watching it. Yeah. Um, because... If you had... Sorry. Like, if you had villains these days that were gay, you would know that they maybe weren't doing it for that reason. Do you know what I mean? If God had wanted man to fly, he would have given him wings, Mr. Kid. It's like, there's so many of those... It was those... like it's like Beavis and Butthead talking to each other. It yeah, was... it was all this Mr. Yeah. Wynn, Mr. Kid, Mr. Wynn, Mr. Kid. Ah, they always said their names. I liked, yeah. I did like the just how there were something different. These two kind of something different, you know. Uh, yeah, you, you need to you need to freshen things up every once in a while, and you know they were in the book. They weren't just created for the film, and I think I think. It, their appearances maybe went downhill, but I see the first appearance when they're in the desert and the light levels added to the, the atmosphere. It was like the sun was just rising in the morning and the use of the scorpion. See, I think they they were a bit more sinister to begin with and they became gradually a bit more cartoonish as the film went along. But, I mean, I did, they, they freshened things up a bit. They could have done more with those characters. I could see yeah. what they were there for and they were a relatively good addition. That was a sort of... I could see their storyline of what they were doing. Yeah. It was, they they weren't perhaps, they were better executed characters than others, certainly, within that No, film. they weren't the worst of, of, I'd say some of the issues with Blofeld in, in general. Let's touch on that then, because we're talking about these kind of characters. Let's move on to Blofeld then. Um, you mentioned, you put it really well there, there was no tension between Blofeld and Bond, and I think that's yeah, nailed it. There yeah. wasn't at all. In fact, and as well as touching on the, the, the subject you mentioned, Steve, and how you were so detached from the, the sort of plot of the film, that's exactly how I felt. I had You would make comments to me, Fran, and be like, what is going on here? And I'd be like, I, I don't know. I, I don't care anymore. Yeah. yeah, I've lost it. I'm not even going to try. I was kind of following the sort of the trail of the diamonds and the motivations of each character and why this was happening and what were they trying to do and they've got clones of Blofeld and these guys <laughs> yeah. and at some point it just I was like you know what I'm just going to take a step back and just watch the carnage going on here uh, but just how many A plots and B plots were there? I mean there was a number of, there was there was a few different things going on all at once and it was hard to it was difficult to follow and things were being constantly introduced. Do you know what I mean? Do you know how when you're writing an essay and they say don't introduce new ideas in the conclusion, etc., etc., all these ways of writing? I just felt like uh, there was a lot of conventions being broken and not in a good way. Right. But on Blofeld then, what, I mean, the the, the clone idea again. So what happened at the start? That was just one of those clones, wasn't it? Obviously, Bond kills. Bond killed, yeah. But I it, think doesn't, so, yeah. it doesn't make it clear that it's a clone until, what, like two thirds of the way through the film? Yeah, or was it. Was it actually established and I missed that? Well, it was established well, the audience the start is thinking, that, watching that, that, he just killed Blofeld? It was established that there was plastic surgery getting done to to make clones of the star, yeah. I mean, it was quite a quick scene. So. Oh, with the, with the mannequin head type yeah. things? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. That was a good part, actually. Yeah, and I think I, I, to some extent I can go along with the idea that Blofeld had the resources to change his appearance. You look at him like going from... You only have twice to Honor Majesties where you know without earlobes and obviously a different actor playing him. 
But um, I think, see on Charles Gray then, who played it, and of course he played Henderson and you only lived twice. That would have still been fresh in the audience's mind, which wasn't so great. But um, I think he had the creepiness factor, actually. I actually liked his casting, and it's a shame that he was used already as an ally. So then it's a bit weird seeing him similar to uh, Jack Wade in the yeah. later in the Pierce Brosnan films when he was used as a villain and licensed to kill, I think, and then and then brought back I was Living Daylights and then brought back as like that's right, yeah, Jack Wade for the the Pierce Brosnan film. So I remember as a kid being like confused, like why is that guy that's dead now a friend of Bond? <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah. So that that was the first version of that, I suppose, in these films, but. As a, as an actual, you know, Blofeld, I think if they had done a much better film surrounding him, he would have been a great Blofeld, because I do think yeah. he has a great look and a sort of, he had a Jack Nicholson-esque mm, demeanour, he's, he's smart mainly, maybe it's the eyebrows are raised, and I like that about him, is the, the creepiness probably yeah. is what it comes down to, and I think that could have been good, I think, but again, the film around him was crumbling and all over the place, disjointed, and it, it kind of ruined it. Blofeld for me. Yeah, it could have been a he, Charles Gray could have been used a lot more effectively as a darker Blofeld, and even the like. Although he was a bit crazy and eccentric, the Joker that Jack Nicholson played was quite dark in some ways. And then you think about like the Heath Ledger Joker from the Batman films. You know, you know a darker villain. You know would have worked better there. And there was it was too affable for me to be yeah. Blofeld. He was, he was too like likable. Friend. Yep. It was like it was like there was a scene where he captured Bond and he's like, oh let me just give you a tour of the facility. I was gonna but point he, that out on the oil rig. But he didn't say it in the way that you he didn't say it in the, you know when the, the villains say that, Steve, they'll say like allow me to give you a tour of whatever it was like and you know they're going to get locked uh -huh. up he legitimately gave him a tour of the premises perfect word is affable he was just like it was uh, as a matter of fact well that's uh, you know it was just said in a way that it was almost like Bond was his old um, university buddy <laughs> I know something, do you know what I mean it was weird Nicking Mud Pies 007 I quite liked the see the pre-title sequence with the the whole um Clone game made a big kind of mud bath thing. There was, a, there was a slight kind of creepiness, a slight morbidity about that pre-title sequence that I did kind of like. Bond um, having, like, kind of flinging Blofeld into the whatever it was. And I thought it was a well-choreographed fight scene there with Bond chucking the little surgical knives at the guards. Throwing, first of all, throwing one of the guards against the other one. He had a really, like, mousetrap, obviously a Q-branch device. Inside his coat pocket, his yeah. Coat pocket. That was That was, that was clever. Good. It's a shame that the people reacting, the people on the receiving end of the violence, just the sort of ham acting was... It let that down slightly, I think. Yeah, yeah there's, there was other scenes, like... There was a slight creepiness and morbidity in certain scenes in the film I did like and this maybe sounds weird the likes of I thought there was some real silliness in the you know the crematorium but there was a oh, slight yeah. darkness about it too which yeah. I kind of appreciate it's like how you know there's a, there'll be people who have a like a genuine interest in history of like serial killers and you know like Nazi history and things like that it's like sometimes you can have a slight interest in the, the darker things. Do you know where I'm coming from with that? Yeah. But I do think it was over the top. Um, you genuinely you felt um, sus suspense in a silly way when Bond was like shut inside the coffin and left to burn alive. But it was over the top, but it did, did you leave you thinking, how's he going to get out of this? But the way he gets out of it is so silly. It's like they just kind of stop. He just re appears it, it, in, back in a normal yeah, life. I was annoyed here. by that because it didn't feel really... It felt like it was a, we'd been kind of shortchanged a little yeah. on that. You know, in peril, oh, it's, and then it's just... He's, he's free. But he's all right. It's even yeah. crazier than that, though, right? Because the guys that are criticising him when they open... The, like, basically, they've let him out of the fiery death pit, right? 
because they've realised that the diamonds are fake. So they were going to burn them alive because they didn't need them anymore because they had the diamonds, right? And then they open the case and they're criticising them and giving them a hard time because he lied. And it's like... And then he just hey, walks off from guys, that scene. you just tried to burn me. Well, not me, but like once you'd have said that, I should have been like, hang on, what, what are you moaning at me for about lying? You just tried to incinerate me. On that crematorium scene, it's probably worth pointing out that it's the first time watching any of these films that we've actually had to physically stop the film and go, right, hang on, what's going on here? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. we did stop at that point, because this was the point where it was James Bond pretending to be Frank, Mr. Franks. What was it? What? Mr. Franks, who had just killed a man who they'd tricked into thinking was James Bond, and then a body flew back. But that was the person that they killed who they thought was... That was the real Mr. Franks that they thought was James Bond. But on the outside was Bond pretending to be Mr. Franks and saying that it was his brother. That was one of these... I think that was a point early on where you realised this film is an absolute mess. Yeah. yeah. We, we lost the plot about 20 minutes, half an hour in. That's the perfect way of putting it. It lost the plot. Right Literally, now, yeah. Being insane or whatever. That was it. I mean, it was bouncing around. See that scene when he was in the lab and then he suddenly was on the surface of the moon? I mean, I sat there. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, yeah. I thought, have I accidentally taken some LSD? I mean, what's happening? I it's know. Amazing. <laughs> peek around <laughs> the rock, you know? Hi. <laughs> but how funny was it, though, and I'll say it again, that the astronauts tried to fight him in slow motion? <laughs> Why? Method acting, man. It's, they were properly getting into character. It's not like they were in a tank of water because the other guys were running around normal speed, you know? Maybe they thought that was like a test scenario and that could have been a, a, somehow a weird elaborate thing that could happen on, yeah, the, on moon the moon and they thought yeah. better, better react <laughs> test the man uh, on the moon and, and, gone insane and as well escaping the moon buggy I'm not having that especially with, like the robotic arms fling, flailing yeah. around the place yeah. and the only the music that could was... survive on earth was the one that's not designed for this planet yeah. I mean honestly that I know led, there was yeah. that led to the desert chase sequence with that awful music yeah. um, <laughs> what was it like again, you described it as like the Zelda the, the, forest the, the, music the, 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 it's like Zelda the legend of Zelda <laughs> that's kind of Wack- weird whistly sound it was it was awful Wacky Races was my immediate thought yeah. I'm not it sure was, why yeah. that music was so bad that, can I just say a lot of John Barry's music was was really effective especially remember when he goes up to Willard Dwight's little Little House in the Hill, and there's a nice version of the James Bond theme, which <laughs> reminded you guys of the Goldeneye uh-huh. game. Yeah, let's let's try and uh, sort of grab some things that were positive in the film. Um, the music, and, and sort of selectively at points, I would say the music was great, and you just touched on it, Gordon. I loved that little sequence with the music, yeah. um, and it, it does help that it was it felt like the music they used in the game, James Bond Goldeneye game. You know, I think it was just a drinking game. Every time I mentioned Goldeneye, you'd be drunk. Yeah, like, that little music, I like that. And let's talk about the actual theme, Diamonds Are Forever, with uh, Shirley Bassey as well. I was surprised, because I didn't think I liked that as much as I did, but then I, I heard it during the title sequence, and I thought, actually, it's a, it's a, it's a genuinely really good song. Uh-huh. I like it. I think it's when you compare it to, to Goldfinger, it doesn't doesn't stand up, but... I like it still as a as a theme, and, and you know, as a song. I, th- I think it had relatively good commercial success as a, a kind of. I believe it was released as a single, yeah, and it will have it, it did particularly well. So that that's an that's absolutely a positive to take away from it. Yeah, I I said it didn't really do much for me. Stephen made our music a Bond podcast, so I would maybe I was I was a little unkind to. It. I really like the end where where Charlie Bassey's voice. Raises goes really high and just goes like forever. The, that kind of last line really 
um, elevates it right at the end. Yeah. I think, see, that's another thing that I think they were trying to emulate Goldfinger with this film and trying to to get back to where the real successes had been because Honor Majesty's Secret Service, although, I mean, it's a great film, I don't think a lot of the public bought into it. It didn't do so well, and that's why they brought back in Shirley Bassey and for the theme tune, they, they brought back Guy Hamilton's director. They were trying yeah. to directly emulate Goldfinger. Strangely, though, in reading just before this podcast, I had read that they offered Peter Hunt first the directing role for this film before Guy Hamilton. So that would suggest that they weren't so they weren't sure about the change in direction initially, and then obviously once he'd turned it down, I think he had another film project on the go at the time, so he couldn't do it. Um, they said, right, let's bring in Guy Hamilton, and, and I don't know if at that point they decided, okay, we'll switch it up with the tone. And and Richard Maybaum's script was was kind of overhauled, and because they went for about four iterations of all sorts of different. It was initially quite a serious film and a revenge film, and then it changed up a few times. I think Cubby Broccoli had some dream about Howard Hughes and um cloning himself or something like that, and that's kind of maybe where some of the I don't know something I, I like that. I don't think it was the coding, or was it thing? something like that, or. Do you know what I think it was? You know how um, Blofeld was kind of using that multi-millionaire Willard White, using basically using oh, his that resources. It. He was some reclusive millionaire billionaire, and uh, Cubby Broccoli had a dream. Some pal has called Howard Hughes, who was he based the character Willard White in him was a reclusive millionaire who nobody had seen him for years. I think he had a dream, and that's what sparked the whole revamp of the script. Yeah, so they went through a lot of changes, and it kind of led to. To what we obviously have now, what were we going to say, Frank? Um, it was just uh, sort of mixing these two points, I guess, with like the whole idea of it being a, a con- uh, the, the film being confusing, I think, comes from all of this. I think that's the root of it. But you hear it, the music, you were talking about the music a, a, a little bit ago there, and the music, some of it was objectively awful, some of it was quite nice, and I think that's that's the, that's the film, basically. Like All of it's like that. It's, it, there are parts of it that are just what the hell's going on here, by the way? And then there's, a, there's other parts that are okay, and then there's, there's parts that almost are quite good, you know? And it, it does seem like a lot of that will, be, you know, you could trace that back to who's going to be directing it, who's going to be doing this, and who's going to be doing that, and what style are we using, and let's rework this, and, and, and pulling ideas from dreams and stuff. I mean, it, you know, it just sounds weird. It sounds like a weird production, as uh, and it's produced a weird film. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's weird. I, I can't think of anything else to say. I think it's when you've had so much success and it's trying to keep that and and working out what the audience want and things like that has led to that as well. And obviously with Connery back in the picture, you know they they obviously didn't want to. It was trying to be like a greatest hits of Bond, but I don't think it worked at all. Yeah. Can I just say as well? I mean, to cut it a little bit slack, I think when Peter Hunt had written an original treatment for the script for Dimes Are Forever, assuming he was going to be doing the next film after, you know, he directed Honor Majesties. And I think he wrote it on the assumption that George Lazenby would be returning. And he had written it as a kind of, as a gritty revenge thriller, almost in the, you know, if you think of what License to Kill was, you know, on that kind of level. And I think it's maybe because Lazenby then revealed he wasn't going to be in it and Sean Connery came in, they realised it might not work. Because the thing is, I picture Sean Connery in this kind of angry revenge thriller and he wasn't the guy that was in the car 
when Tracy got murdered. Uh-huh. He wasn't the guy who was in that film, so it might have been a bit hard to comprehend if he yeah. was well, in that. Especially since Lazenby had said this never happened to the other fella. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Is it possible that Lazenby's bond retired early because of the trauma and then Connery was brought back in for you know what I mean? Like if we think of an in universe explanation, he wouldn't be as invested in the death, would he? I think as well, Con- yeah, definitely. Um and I think Connery as well, you know, he's it's similar to Young Live Twice. I don't think his heart was in it, his delivery wasn't it. You think of the the real zest he had in like the first four films with his his dialogue, it was. I'm trying. Wasn't... To, I'm trying to picture. I felt like he had a bit more um, oomph in him than than you only live twice. Again, it's a natural charisma thing with him. I think he certain ways just delivers lines and his kind of posture and and sort of things like that. It helps that he has a lot of character. But yeah, he, yeah, he probably wasn't. He wasn't killing it. I would say. What do you, Steve? Would you? Connery seemed. He definitely seemed more on form than he did in. The film before he, the film before On Her Majesty's, before he left, he twice. where he, you could tell he was fed up. He was obviously having problems behind the scenes. So I think that few year break obviously did him a bit of good, and he came back slightly refreshed. But it was there's not much you could do with that film. That could be the greatest actor on the planet, and I still don't think there's much yeah. you could do yeah, with that on. script and what was going on around him. Yeah, I don't think it was on Connery really. No, I don't think. Uh, I agree. On this, on this occasion, I don't think you could really say it's Connery is the issue. It's really the script, really the the producers for a lot of the decisions that were made be, be, even before the film was was made, and even I would say Guy Hamilton as a director, I think kind of wasn't able to control the film and the, the tone of the film, either in the editing side of things. Um, but yeah, it's. A lot of uh, a lot of issues. I just I just have to say like it's weird. I don't know how much. I honestly don't know how much more I can say about it. Like yeah, I feel like I'd be I'd be forcing points. Like I I just me I don't. I mean, fair play to you guys if you've got more to say about it, more other scenes or whatever. But I I think I'd be reaching if I tried to come up with something else about it. Well, I think we've touched on most things, Gordon. Is there anything you've got? Yeah. Well. I think the film did benefit from Connery's charisma again, and there was there was some great scenes with him in it. I I know we we thought it was a bit over the top. I quite liked his scene with the little piton gun to as a way of like climbing out of the window of the hotel to get to the top floor where Willard White's kind of HQ was. That's the I quite in his dinner jacket in the film. Yeah, but yeah. it just it was like that was back to classic Bond in a lot of ways, and. I think as well there was some good scenes between him and Tiffany Case. I like I kind of liked Tiffany Case to begin with. One thing I liked about her is good to like I say I like different characters to freshen things up a bit. If you think the likes of the film Octopus, the Octopus herself was a um, she was a, a criminal ringleader. She was like head of a crime syndicate, and Tiffany Case as well was a criminal. And it was it was interesting to see how Bond, you know got on with them as opposed to like you know one of the good girls you know I quite I quite liked her, but I, I felt later in the film um, her character just diminished and she became a bit kind of ditzy like falling off the oil rig with the, trying to shoot the machine uh, gun and all that you know yeah, uh, I thought she seemed at first she seemed like quite a firm kind of yeah she had quite a lot of balls right in that, that you know? point she did start she had a lot of, like, she kind of seemed like she really knew she was in control of situations and things yeah. like that. And as the film went on, she became, uh, yeah. She had a sort of toughness about her in the film. I remember, she was really putting Bond in his place when he went up to her, her apartment for the first time. And 
and she she was like checking his she thought he was Peter Franks and she was checking his fingerprints match and you know I, I thought she seemed quite good at that point I thought as well I did enjoy the I thought it was a good fight sequence between Bond and Peter the real Peter Franks in the lift. I don't, I can't understand how it started, but, the, you know, all this glass breaking, a couple of moments of real peril for Bond, just the, the whole fighting in a, a small space, similar to, like, with Red Grant on the train and, and from Russia with Love. Yeah. There was good, like, fight choreography and everything. Yeah. I thought that was one of the plus points, I suppose. I don't, see, I, I, want, I want to bring up the good points because there's some, I know I've always criticised this film a lot, but, you know, there's some good in it, you know. There you, you go. I don't. I don't hate as much as I made out. Uh, for me, it was the some of the music was great, and um, initially I was I was enjoying. I did say it this. I'm really enjoying having Connery back. That was one of the things I did say because it was it was fresh and it was it was it's fun to just have him return into the role. But that feeling kind of did diminish as as I realised the film didn't have it a consistency or any coherence at all, um, and and that my sort of I wasn't gripped. Um, yeah. So and I think as well, remember. Everyone goes on about oh Roger Moore started all the the over the top humor in the Bond films. It really started in this film. I mentioned well, this before. Yeah. This set the set the tone for Roger. Moore. I think they used it. I think Roger Moore worked. used it. Like he was part of it. Like he would say lines in a way, but Sean Connery didn't quite have that because there was actually a chat a, a moment where I felt he was gonna here comes the one liner and it was just nothing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. And so in some cases, I think it's just poor screenwriting. But I think the the humor factor. It worked much better with Moore's Bond. It it didn't fit here, and it didn't fit at all, given the sort of film we had preceding it. It just didn't work. It's it's what it's this film is one of the ones where you think you have to adopt a sort of a, a different approach to Bond, where it's not a con- continuity and it's just its own thing, and you kind of have to bring that to the film and sort of like. But you know, you know, the film wasn't intending that. It was trying. It did have at the start. He's hunting Blofeld and things, but. To, to try and enjoy this film, I think you have to go into it with a sort of mind frame of this is its own thing and it's it's crazy and enjoy enjoy it for that. Very specific. It felt too much like they were trying to bring old audiences back. I don't know if there was perhaps a dip in audience or I don't know what the... I mean, there will have been critical reviews around, I imagine, after on Her it Majesty's Secret reviews. Service. And I can imagine people going, this is too much of a departure. There wasn't any... It wasn't Bond enough in that there weren't the women and the guns and the explosions. So they've obviously tried to bring that back. But I think, as you mentioned, it was just dialed up. And we've spoken before about sort of incompetence within some of the villains um, on occasion, how some of the some of the villains in some places, some of the fights and whatnot can be a bit dim-witted. In this case, it was everybody in this film. It was the entire supporting cast. The chase through the desert after he'd escaped from that sort of government facility and he was driving the moon buggy through the desert and every single car crashed and ended up on his roof. And then the police chase, when he was um, supposed to be stopped for speeding, driving through Las Vegas. And to give it credit, I like the Las Vegas at night, the strip, the old strip. It looks, I think just that looks really cool and the old casinos and stuff and the lights. But driving around that car park, all Bond was doing was driving in a circle around a car park Every single police car crashed into each other 
or into another parked car, or somehow ended up on its it, roof. It was like someone was playing a computer game and said <laughs> difficulty really easy, and it was just like the, yeah. the computer characters were just like, weren't even shooting, and they were yeah. just like shooting It's off like when directions. I pick up a control panel for any computer game, and I don't know what I'm doing, I tend to just, yeah, yeah. drive into walls and fall off stuff. It was I, like the Blues Brothers car chases. Yes, you were saying that. Yeah. It just, it felt overly incompetent. You thought, people... People aren't this stupid. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or at least if they were, they wouldn't be policemen and bloody in charge of criminal yeah. organisations. <laughs> well, oh, no. I mean, even the public were dumber than usual. <laughs> just standing waiting to die, you know? Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, I think we're kind of close to rating time. Is yes. there anything else yeah. anybody wants to go off their chest before it? No. Right. Okay. <laughs> Fran, you're eager. Yes. Give your rating. What is your rating for this film? Two out of five, because it's not. It's not a cinematic disaster. Gordon raises some good points. I think I I sort of alluded to this as well. You know, it's not it's not all terrible, but it's probably about eighty percent terrible. Um, twenty percent of that is going to give it two stars for me and my weird maths in my head. Um, and I and 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 I enjoyed the terribleness anyway, in a weird kind of way. It was like being on drugs. So and I liked Blowfield and Drag. As well, that was just the most craziest thing I've seen in a long time. Filled in drag. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? Why did he even do that? The effort the guy went to just to look different for that little scene when he was picking someone up. It feels a bit like there was a bit beforehand and a bit after that that got cut out. And all that was left was, yeah, Tiffany gets into a taxi and he's there in drag for five seconds. No reference to it again (laughs) afterwards. It was Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. Like, (laughs) what is happening? Almost every decision you feel like saying, why? Why was that made? It's like you never. It makes you feel like you're five years old and you're asking questions. Yeah. Why? But why? Yeah. You know, Gordon, your uh, your thoughts on this going into this film? You were obviously you knew that this wasn't one of your favorites. Let's say yeah. probably your least favorite of the franchise. After this watch, how do you feel? <laughs> Again, it's not my my opinion hasn't really improved. I wouldn't say it's gone down, but it's by far for me the worst Bond film. And I think the 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 most um, uncomfortable point of the whole film. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a film, it's just a very camp feel that's just so different to what we've been used to and especially the one before it. The dialogue is cheesy and over the top. Blofeld's over the top. You know, there's good elements. I, again, other slight decent factors which just give it a slight plus point are you know, I think good scenes with Bond and M and Money Penny, however brief, very brief, very brief. Okay. I um, me a diamond ring. I know. And of course, <laughs> she goes on about a diamond ring. You think he'd be sort of hurt from remembering his, you know, it'd remind him of Tracy in the wedding. And the, do you know the funny thing is, um, I said before about one of the the things I hate about the film the most is Bond seems to not not really be too bothered one way or the other about, you know, his his wife being murdered. He just kind of strolls along having a laugh for most of the film. And even in the likes of The Spy Who Loved Me and The World's Not Enough, when a couple of the, the leading women in the film like make reference to his wife, he seems genuinely sort of hurt and uncomfortable. There's not one second in that film he seems genuinely hurt by the whole experience and traumatised the way he was in the books. And I think, you know, it's the lack of flow from the previous film that uh, I really, really don't like. And I think the screenplay is a bit weak. I think there's a certain Connery injects a certain amount of charisma in it. Again, like I said, I think Bambi and Thumper were good catches. The two sort of gymnastic. God, really? I touched on that. I was just going to say I that wasn't keen I, on that at all. I thought it was all right. See, I think again, it's freshening things. I like the idea of Bond 
against two female enemies at once, and the fact they're kind of gymnastic women beating them up. I, I like that, but he disposed of them a bit too easily, just simply like shoving them, their heads underwater. But no, I thought this they were... didn't really portray women very well, not in that sort know. of like overly obviously sexist way. They just weren't. It's not like they had a high opinion of a it lot of them. Felt a massive step backwards. Yeah, hugely. Yeah. I do think. See the end. The end credits. Every time I see says James Bond will return and live and let die, and God, I love live and let die. I really do. See when I see that at the end of the film, after what I've just experienced for the last two hours, it's a it's like an oasis to me. And I, I'm it's so like keen to. At the end. As and Doctor. and you know what amazes me is live and let die. It's so good, and it was only two years later. And it has a lot of the humorous elements, but the screenplay's better. It works better. This was the wrong sort of film at the wrong time. It was a it was a, a disappointing way for Connery to bow out. Like I said, there's a few plus points. To me, it's still Bond. It's still an Eon production. It's I think it only just gets past marks enough to make it a two. You're a better so, Bond I'm, fan than it's like, a Star Trek fan. It's like 2.0, I know. Yeah. I love James Bond, I really do, but this film drags the franchise down. Steve. Over and out. <laughs> nice Straight and simple, one out of five. Wow. Yeah. I did not I enjoy you, this. I could tell from how you spoke I about this, you did not like just this Just the... I mean, the, the biggest point, obviously, is the complete lack of continuity from the last film. This should have been so much better. This should have been a gritty revenge film. And it wasn't. The plot was completely impossible to follow. There are too many odd sort of off to the sides storylines that made no sense the supporting Cat Connery was Connery I think salvages that one star because his performance he did the best I think he could with that script and the rest of that film the complete dim-wittedness of everyone else the awful acting from a lot of the supporting casts I just I sat almost glazed over for a lot of that going what the hell is going on it just I struggled to enjoy that so I'm going to give it a relatively straight up simple one. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, it's a two stars for me. Um, I agree with mostly pretty much all the points made. Um, I think I was able to enjoy the first third of the film a little from, I think, just having Connery back and sort of, again, some of the music, the the actual title theme I, I did enjoy. There was, um, there was those little moments that were Bond's back kind of feeling and then that ebbed quite quickly as as the plot really unfolded and the lack of tension between the villains and like you said every other character being dim-witted as well Steve that was that was so off-putting so yeah I really no I actually thought I would like this film more than I did because I remember enjoying it as a kid I really used to like this film but I didn't know what made a good film back then I just liked Bond, guns, chases, things like that. I didn't understand what. And made in fairness, there's an audience for that. I think there is a section of the audience that will just sit and watch the explosions and the girls and the violence and the the finest and enjoy that. So I completely agree. There's probably a market for this film. And I bet you it's one of those films. It's like if you're at a party and there's a film on in the background and it's just the sort of like you nobody's paying attention to it. It's probably a good film. <laughs> that, for that. That's really like, that's when nobody's like, actually yeah, watching it. But it's like you all turn and watch some crazy scene. I mean, we haven't even touched on the fact that there's a car chase and Bond does that sort of comic oh. style to tilt the car through the. I've only the... ever seen that done in that film. Oh, what was it? Twins. Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, really? and Danny yeah. DeVito. There you go. A comedy film, right? There exactly. We go. Uh, so, yeah, th- this was the first, I'd say, the first kind of the genesis of the tonal shift into the Moore era, which is about to start. And 
it was it, the Moore films. I, I suspect with *Live and Let Die*, at least you know they've got much more um, intense villains and just better dialogue and things like that. So I'm looking forward, hopefully, to a, a better Bond film. This was a shame. This was a a bit of a downer on that side of things, isn't it? But again, Fran, like you said, there is there's a way to enjoy this the carnage. If Steve didn't, <laughs> and I can understand. But I also can kind of get your point, Fran, that there is a way to enjoy some of this. So, and I think as well, I'm. It's only kind of just shaded a two for me, just on account of me being a a Bond fan, and just you know, some there's some there was still part of that formula there, and just enough to get it over the line for me. Um, but big disappointment, I think as well. Um, you know, it's probably. I mean, maybe now that that's over, that that is Connery's last official Bond film, like. I mean, as a retrospective of um, Connery, you know, six f- six films. Um, what what do you guys now? Not now, obviously, all of you haven't seen all the Connery films. Like, what what's your your general opinion of the the Sean Connery era? For me, his first three films are some of the best Bond films I've seen. Escalating. You know, and that's what's enjoyable about it. Doctor No was a great starting point, great casting, all sorts. Obviously, not just on Connery. We're talking about the Bond franchise in general. His performance, I think, he kind of got more confidence into the role, and by the time Goldfinger, he was the the perfect example of 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 the character. And with that sort of heightened cinematic style that Guy Hamilton brought in with Goldfinger, that made it work. So it was all perfect by that point. Um, and then Thunderball. For me, was 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 he was fine in it, but I had issues with film. And then it's it's been a, a bit of a cliff edge from that. What do you feel, Fran? Obviously, you've not even watched Thunderball for God's sake. Yeah, but I mean, I have seen it in the past, so I've got a, a sort of vague recollection of that. But I don't know, like I don't know if I'm going to know how I feel about that until I've seen more. Do you know what I mean? Like I I know we've we've had Lazen Bay and we've seen another Bond, but like I almost feel like I'm going to need the mirror of of Roger Moore to really compare how I feel about Sean Connery, if that makes sense. Like, am I going to miss Sean Connery more or less when I get to Moore and that's going to help me decide. But, you know, I've enjoyed Connery's Bond films, maybe not as much as I I, I don't think I'm going to enjoy. At the end, I, I think maybe he'll be one of the ones I've enjoyed maybe less than the rest, precisely because Bond is a more fully realized character later on. In, in the sense that they know what they're doing and there's a certain feel and all this kind of thing. But, I mean, I wouldn't take that as a, as a cast-iron opinion at this stage. Steve? I'm with Fran in that I think I'm going to need to see a few of the Moore films to almost compare Connery. Um, but first three films, absolutely, I think was his peak. He, I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching him in the role. I think it's going to be tough to beat, but obviously we're coming on to Roger Moore, who a lot of people obviously see as the quintessential bond um yeah i i struggle to take much effort with connery it's a shame that he, that things obviously soured slightly by film number four and it's a i think it's a massive shame that he bowed out with this film which we've established was not particularly good so it's a, a kind way to put it there yeah i'm, I'm, I'm being incredibly so, generous you get a one-star review it's yeah, not particularly are. good like I'm, I'm actually quite shocked like i'm so, like i must be bad for you to feel this vehement 
vehemently about it, if that makes sense, because you're usually quite sort of fair on films, I think. Like, I, that's I tend I to go for the positives. There's yeah. just not enough positives for me to grasp yeah. in this yeah. film, so it was it was, it was was tricky. Like, and I, trust, I trust it if you give a film a one star, do you know what I mean? Like, I think, right. Yeah, it makes me think, yeah. should I change my, my rating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, maybe, maybe it's the idiot part. Like, I feel like I've got a part of me that's, like, dumber than anything that you've ever, you have, Steve. Like, you're, you're, oh, you're smarter I disagree than me, with you know that. I, mean? <laughs> so, like, I feel like that's the part of me that loves the craziness, do you know what I mean? Like, maybe you're like I don't know. Like I think you're looking for the craft and and not uh-huh. and not just like you can just enjoy insanity <laughs> as it's as a thing itself, but also and, be aware that it is uh-huh. insane. Like you kind yeah. of you you it's just it's just the way people come into films. But yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. I think we both we kind of agreed. His first three films were escalating and peak at Goldfinger, and yeah. then it's a bit a sort of a bit of a drop. Gordon, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think Connery really peaked around, for me, about Goldfinger and Thunderball. Really enjoyed the first two as well. And yeah, it's a shame it went out with a, a bit of a whimper. I think um, he lost some of that zest. I felt even in this film, yeah. He'd, and he put on a bit of weight as well. Physically, he looked like he's really aged since Doctor No. Yeah, I mean, it's yes. hard. To, we were trying to decide what age he was around this film. I think he must be in his early 40s, but you you, you were saying maybe early, late 30s. He's not as much different than that, but... He does certainly look at least in his mid-40s. An interesting point as well, Steve uh, obviously mentioned there about um, you know his last film not being the best one to bow out on. Uh, that seems to have been a bit of a theme if you look at, well, the way people genuinely guard films. Like Everyone seems to think of you to kill was Moore's worst film and the Dying of the Day was Brosnan's worst one, so, you know. And hopefully Daniel Craig's last one won't won't be a dodgy one. Do you want to do you want to know what I think sums this? <clears throat> if we were to pick a sound that sums up this film, it would be the sound the canal boat operator made when the body was pulled out the the river in the film. Do you remember that sort of whimper sound yeah. that she oh, made? Yeah. That is the oh, sound. Yes, yes. That is the sound of this movie. <laughs> that is basically it. Over to the right, there's a ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Confused. Horror, horror, basically. Yeah, Sir Roger Moore, we need you. We need Love and Let It Die. Let's get back to what makes Bond brilliant. Yes. And honestly, um, I cannot believe there's just two years between those two films because it's like a world of difference. The same as that there's a world of difference between Honor Majesties and, and that. We but... never actually brought in our usual um, section, uh, the Where Bond is Dated section. And let's play the new Bond is Dated theme. Bond is Dated. Bond is dated, sexist, misogynist, he don't care. Bond is dated, license to offend. Uh, this film, uh, just to bring it, uh, just very quickly on that. Do you feel that this film, obviously there was, I, I kind of thought in general that the, the treatment of women just wasn't great. Not in an obvious way that the previous films were, where he's actually, well, let's say, harassing them. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. This was more, it, it was like another example of Bond himself, his treatment has improved slightly, but the whole film itself, every woman again was scantily clad. Every time that, the first time you see Tiffany, pretty much every every scene beyond then, she wasn't wearing very much, and it was it was a seemingly a, a deliberate decision. When, you know, at the very end of the oil rig, she's... They're running away with all these explosions and whatnot. She's obviously been taken or whatever by Blofeld. And she's still in a, a somehow completely different bikini that she's presumably being given by Blofeld or his men for some reason. Same with uh, Bambi and Thumper, who I've got to say made absolutely no sense to me. They were just constantly cartwheeling and backflipping. Yeah. 
in bikinis um, and I, I, the crap I, listen, out of I, like, I, I like the gymnastics though I think and the way that how Bond reacted to that but I think as well you know why did he need to hit Tiffany Case when he, he suddenly sort of revealed who he is and why yes. did and, the, and again the girl at the start like why does he need to strangle her with a I was just going to say you know? about that the way they hit her I was just like I was quite a bit it was a bit that was a much. shot there was there was no need for that absolutely that was no like it didn't, there was no thought to it just smack her it was yeah. like really kind of like alarming I thought um, quite a little uncomfortable on that and yeah, the way how vicious he was at the start, you know, this is the first scene, essentially, isn't it? And the, the edit, I don't know if it was the editing or something, he seemed to, you know, drift about five, like ten feet forwards within about two seconds when she says, is there anything I can do for you? All, all of a sudden he's down there right next to her. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, 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 obviously yeah. He, was, he was keen. But yeah, I don't know. Don't we all know that this is the case now? Like, it's, it's going to take a wee while for it yeah. to get better. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think we're we're done. We're not uh, not happy with this film, and, and it's not getting it's not going to be high up in the top ten. I don't think when we finally rank these films, and uh, Live and Let Die is hopefully going to be a better better experience. All right then. I think that's an absolute fact. It will be. <laughs> yep. All right then. On that note, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We were taught secret agent skills, but never able to use them. Leben Globenstuch, but you bash. This on to you. Is that me there? We should, be, we should be careful, maybe, when is trying it, new things. Is there anything the coming through the headphones just now? <laughs> 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 Being careful, we don't take any risks. Like, remember what happened with the Goldfinger? As Captain Kirk would say, risk is part of the game if you want to sit in the captain's chair, Gordon. Yeah, it does seem good. Loud and clear, the, mag so. the magic sock. Listen back. And... <laughs> God's sake, man. <laughs> wow.